All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of Cut the Shit, Get Fit. I am your host, Rafal Machashevsky, and today joining me is the amazing Dean Somerset. Say hello. How's everyone doing out there? Thanks for having me on, Rafael. No problem. So I want to start this off a little differently than all my other episodes and kind of ask you, what did you do this past weekend? <laughs> this past weekend, I was yeah. freezing my butt off. I mean, it was about minus 30 here, uh, and that's in Celsius, so about minus uh, 25, 30 in Fahrenheit. So Jeez. just stayed in, indoors, stayed warm, did some uh, writing, some reading, working out. Went to dinner with my wife. It was her birthday last week, so we had a birthday dinner, and that's about it. Slept in. That's it. That's awesome. That's like Pretty nothing Nothing compared to out here in Vancouver. It was like minus five and everyone was complaining that it was too cold. Yeah, I saw on the news that people were like bum rushing the sand and salt and like pushing <laughs> yeah. each other over. And it's like, yeah, all right. Yeah, that's going to help. <laughs> it's so strange. Like we <laughs> get angry and like mob like mentality over the stupidest things. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it could always be worse. You could live in Edmonton, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. What What can you do in Edmonton? That's like fun, for example. There's actually a lot of things going on. We've got different festivals pretty much all the way through the year, but uh, we also had this big ice castle forum that was built, and uh, we've got a really vibrant restaurant bar scene. Everyone has a lot of th- good things to say about our art gallery and museums, and plus, I mean, in the summertime, it's great when the river valley's open. There's a lot of things you can do outdoors. Pops out. Awesome. So let's get started off with um, telling the audience who you are, what you do, and how you got into this industry. Well, like uh, Rafael said, I'm Dean Somerset, and I'm a personal trainer, kinesiologist in Edmonton. Um, I work with mostly post-rehab type clientele, so people who've come to me with some sort of a medical dysfunction or injury or something like that, and they just need to get back into action again. Um, I've been fortunate enough to work with some pro athletes, some Olympic champions, uh, some amateur athletes, and that's really cool, but I've also worked with a bunch of people who've had things like spinal cord injuries, uh, heart issues, one heart transplant client who was really cool to work with the odd uh, cerebellular issue or cerebral issue so pretty much everyone under the sun um, how I got into it was I'm just a meathead at heart I just like to lift things and move stuff from A to B and that's just always been a passion of mine that's something that just kind of defines who I am and I wanted to be able to find a way that I could make a living out of it and I've seemed to do pretty well with that that's awesome so do you work at your like own facility or kind of a other gym and just rent space like what's your setup there no, uh, I actually work at a commercial facility, so very much like what a, a Good Life or an Equinox or a Gold's Gym. It's a, a, I guess you could say a regional gym called World Health. It's in Alberta exclusively, so it's Edmonton and Calgary, but there's about uh, 10 locations in Edmonton and about 11 or 12 in Calgary. And it's a corporate gym structure, so it's the same as what most commercial gym structures would be, and I'm just an employee through that. But uh, I've been able to have a lot of leeway to do some of my own stuff because it builds up their business and builds up their uh, esteem to be able to say that I work there and I'm able to increase their, I guess you could say marketability, but, uh, also it brings in clients and it brings in good business. So they, they love it. It's always good. Yeah. Cause I used to work for a big box gym and that was like one of the struggles is that you couldn't really do what you really wanted to do. You had to follow some guidelines. So it was kind of like, sometimes you would headbutt with the manager or other trainers that are trying to steal your clients and stuff like that. 
Yeah, but I mean, as long as you're able to show the managers that here, here's what I'm planning to do, here's why it's going to make the business look good, and here's why it's going to generate more business, they'll rarely ever have a problem with it because you're taking the initiative in marketing and it doesn't cost them anything. So at the end of the day, if it brings in money and doesn't cost money, they're usually willing to go for it as long as you at least let them know about it ahead of time. Yeah, definitely. So do you kind of have like market yourself word of mouth at that gym or is it people referring you because you're like the rehab guy now? Most is through direct clinician referrals. So I've got a, a network of physical therapists, chiropractors, and MDs who they'll all refer me people on a regular basis as needed, just depending on what the situation is. So if I have somebody who's coming in who, let's say they've worked with a physiotherapist that I work with a lot, who does a lot of work with uh, women's health and pre-postnatal kind of stuff, and if they have specific set of like pelvic floor dysfunction, then they'll just send them to me and say, hey, go meet with Dean and get some training to get stronger and get better use of the area but then they'll still be working with them to be able to do the fine tuning and the clinical aspect of things sweet and you said um you had a one client with a heart transplant was that did i hear that right yeah that was pretty cool yeah how did (laughs) when you like got the call or email that you're gonna have this person like what were like your initial thoughts like how the hell am i gonna program for this person or like (laughs) Well, I've taken some advanced uh, cardiophysiology classes, so you're able to learn about you know what those elements are involved with a heart transplant. I mean, the biggest one is that there's a nerve that innervates the heart that has that direct autonomic stimulation to it. So when you get relaxed or when you get excited, it directly affects your heart rate. When you have a transplant, that nerve's cut, so you don't really have that direct impact of the nervous system adjusting heart rate. So a lot of it has to be through baroreflex and baroreceptor. So as oxygen content and carbon dioxide content changes, that's what mediates whether or not the heart rate goes up or down so a lot of the time when we spend with him he's still doing normal cardio type activities he's still doing resistance training but you have to kind of build him up a little bit slower and then bring him back down slower just due to the fact that you don't have that neural innervation but aside from that it's not really too difficult they usually don't discharge them into a a gym based setting until they're ready for it so for me it's not like i'm working in like acute medicine or emergency or anything like that where they have to be right on the ball it's like they've at least gone through something before they come into me so it makes the job a little bit easier that way yeah because i would definitely be a little nervous (laughs) like so by the way i had a heart transplant and now you're responsible for me (laughs) yeah and i mean i wouldn't recommend that for the average trainer because like I've taken some different certifications and courses based on stuff that I'm interested in. And one of the advanced cardio ones was all about about everything that could go wrong with the heart. So for stuff like that, unless you're working with a population where you have to think, okay, heart attacks, um, different types of uh, hypertension medication or transplants or anything like that, unless you actually want to work with those kind of clients, that's the kind of stuff that you don't necessarily need to learn a lot about. But I felt it was interesting and wanted to dig into it. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. Um, So I think one of your titles I've seen on the web is like you're known as like an exercise physiologist. Is that right? Yeah, I have a designation as a certified exercise physiologist. So that helps out. And have you ever like thought about like going into like maybe becoming a physiotherapist or are you almost able to do close to that with what you have now with all these different certifications? Well, initially my plan was to go into physiotherapy, but I was thinking about it when I was uh, just finishing up high school and I thought, you know, I don't really want to 
work in the clinical side of things exclusively. I like the gym. So I want to be able to work in the gym and create kind of my own niche where I can exist in there to be able to help people get jacked and awesome, but then also help the people who have no idea what to do when they've been discharged from physio to stay strong and get stronger. So there's usually a bit of a disconnect when the physio says, okay, you're good to go. Here's your homework exercise. Here's what I want you to do. And then they're released into a gym and it's like, okay, well, what do you do from there? Once those exercises that they gave them six months from now, they're getting bored with them. What do they do? So my niche has all been about how do I get people from the clinic into the gym and feel stronger and just be able to show them how to progress through that series. Um, in terms of what I can do, I'm not a physiotherapist and I don't plan to be, and I don't try to pass myself off as being one just due to the fact that like that is a specific designation in a field. I mean, I can work with clients that have had previous injuries, but I can't do things that a physio does, nor do I want to. It's just, that's something that is really specific in that element. And I think that right now there's kind of a, a, a weird trend going on where a lot of trainers are trying to be really bad physiotherapists instead of being really good trainers. It's cool to know something about an exercise or about an injury and be able to say, okay, I know what that's about and I can help you when you're at this stage. But man, that doesn't mean that you should be trying to do joint manipulations on clients or doing like dry needling on them in the middle of the gym floor. I mean, there's a time and place for that kind of stuff. And if you don't know how to do it as a trainer, tag out and get somebody else in there who can. Yeah, I think ever since our industry got into like the whole functional scene, you're seeing a lot more coaches like diagnosing, oh, your shoulder hurts because of this and this and this. And then that client goes to the physio and they're like, I don't know what that guy was talking about. He was completely wrong. Yeah. And I mean, do you want to be the guy who tries to diagnose things and gets them wrong and then has a lawsuit brought down on you? Yeah, if that's the case. So like you can do that, but you're going to lose because that's outside of your scope of practice. I know. Like for me personally, when I train clients, they're like, Oh, my shoulder's kind of bummed. Like, what do you think it is? And I'm like, honestly, I could guess, but most likely I'm wrong. I would go to a physio and they could tell you what exactly what it is. Yeah. And I mean, I might form an opinion about what I think it is, but if I can make the person get better without necessarily referring them out without having a specific diagnosis, then it's not something I really need to worry too much about. But if it's something that's consistent, the first thing I'm saying is, you know what, this is outside of my pay grade. You got to go get that checked out by someone who can do medical imaging on it or do specific in-depth testing on it that I just don't have the ability to do, nor do I want to really take time away from the gym to do that kind of stuff. The other interesting thing about like the whole rehab with clients is like sometimes say an example is a client hurts their ankle or a knee or whatever joint and they almost use it as an excuse to stop training because they don't really want to be at the gym. And yep. I find that like so interesting where they just like crutch on any kind of injury like, oh, my shoulder hurts. So I went to my doctor and they told me I can't use it for six weeks. Yeah, and I'm that's like, fine. You still got two good legs and one other good arm and a core and a heart. So let's get those all working. And it's just interesting. Like the more I learn about this industry, I just kind of look at like what's going on in someone's brain. Like, why do you feel that just an injury can make you just stop everything and just like go home and eat a whole bag of Cheetos? Yeah. I mean, there is a huge psychosomatic element towards injuries where people can go through uh, depressive cycles just due to the fact that they have an injury that's keeping them from doing something that they really want to do. So, I mean, if you have somebody that has a shoulder injury, well, there's a lot of stuff you can do that involve your legs that doesn't involve your shoulder, whether or not it's cardio, whether it's active or anything like that. It's just a matter of, you know, finding the stuff that you can do and working at it. But even then that little bit of an injury that keeps somebody away from doing what they want to do can have a massive impact on that person's mind frame. Yeah, it's tough. Like even the clients that are like super motivated and yeah, they hurt, I don't know, their back and like everything kind of falls apart and they feel helpless. Like 
you just want to almost like grab him, be like, it's going to be okay. Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> Start doing some Tony Robbins motivational speeching to them. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah. Um, so let's jump into this next question. I was trying to like bring it over, but um, since it's January and everyone's kind of like jumping on New Year's resolutions and, you know, most people will go, you'll see like, the, especially the big box gyms, everyone's there that first week. And then the second week, it starts like filtering out everybody. And then by the third week, everyone's gone. Why do you f- like, personally, why do you think most people fall off their like get fit in 2017 resolution? Well, I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that change is difficult. If you have somebody who wants to make a complete 180 degree turn in their life, that's going to be a massive change and fluctuation to what they're used to. And it's going to cause a lot of stress in their lifestyle. So for a lot of people, when they try to make change, it is that 180 degree change. They go from eating poorly in December, not really exercising all that much, to saying, okay, I'm going to go to the gym six days a week and I'm going to change my diet 180 degrees and only have like 12 or 1300 calories. And that usually doesn't work because it's such a drastic change. So in terms of the people who usually are successful, it's something that they've made a a very minor change and they've just been able to stick with it. So maybe it's something like, okay, I'm just going to wake up 20 minutes earlier. When I get to downtown, which is where my club is, I'm just going to go to the gym for 30 minutes and, and be able to do a workout because I'm already there and then go to work. So they just build it into part of their day rather than making it a specific event. When it comes to food, they just adjust one or two small things about their diet at a time. Rather than changing the entire thing around, they might just say, okay, well, this I'm going to make my breakfast different, or I'm going to have more vegetables with my lunch, or I'm going to have less snacks at night. So they're trying to make it a change, but not necessarily doing a 180-degree change, but it's small degrees moving in that right direction. So yeah. in, in many ways, yeah, in many ways, it's just like, okay, it's accumulation of small benefits that lead to the big payoff. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I tell my clients the same thing. You're better off, like, focusing on one thing at a time than, like, 30 different things because it's January. And then by week two, you face plant on the floor and you wonder why you haven't lost 10 pounds. Yeah. And a lot of the time, it's the simple stuff that sticks. Um, so if you had, like, a brand new client that just came in um, for, like, fat loss in general, like what would you like? How would you implement a program for them, and what kind of advice would you give them starting out? Well, it, it a lot of that is going to depend on who they are and what they're willing to do. But part of that comes down to communicating with them. Okay, well, you understand what you need to do to lose weight. For one, you have to consume fewer calories, and you have to start exercising so you can burn a few more. And it just comes down to okay, what elements or what elements of that are you willing to do? So are you willing to change what you eat for breakfast or your lunch or your dinner? Or are you willing to alter what you do for snacks? What are you willing to do for things like exercise? Are you willing to add more in or change what you're doing? Any of those things are coming down. So I've had some clients where the only thing that they're willing to do is go to bed a half hour earlier. And it's like, okay, well, that change is good. That's a good starting point. So let's stick stick with that. If you're able to get some more rest, you're going to feel better and you have more energy, which means that there's going to be a likelihood of you wanting to start doing exercise down the road or change up some of the things that you're eating. So let's start with that. And if that is the only place that they're willing to start, let's get them to actually start there rather than saying, okay, well, you have to follow this food plan. You have to follow this workout plan. You have to stretch like this. You have to do that. It's those, again, it's those small, simple steps. So just trying to find a way to get the client to say, okay, here are the things I'm willing to do and then holding them accountable to actually doing that. Yeah, the other one, like I always tell clients is like, you just have to be consistent with at least one thing to see a benefit because 
I'll have clients that have trained over the years where say they're coming one day a week and that's all they can do. But Mm -hmm. then in that month they miss two and then the next month they miss one. And then there's one month where they miss three and they're like, what the hell? I'm not losing weight. I'm like, well, you just need to show up. (laughs) Right. I have one client who he shows up once every two weeks and he's done that religiously for the last 10 years. But in between then, he's lost 40 pounds. And the big reason that he was able to do that is in the days that I don't see him, he goes for a walk through his neighborhood for 30 minutes a day. So we were able to make a a plan where he was able to say, okay, well, here's recreational activity of just going for a walk. And then he changed like one or two small things in his diet. And 10 years later, he's down 40 pounds. So it doesn't have to be something that's magical or mythical. It just has to be small changes in the right direction. Yeah, I think the worst is when... um you know, you're working with a client, you're giving them all the best information you possibly can think of. And they're kind of just going through the motions. And then they come and tell you, Hey, I'm going to do this cleanser diet. What do you think? And you just like facepalm and <laughs> like, I just don't understand why they wouldn't want to put in like a sincere effort for like just a month or two of just like eating clean, so-called clean and work out. Then put themselves through suffering by a hardcore diet. Yeah. But you know, some people, they actually do get good results from that. So when somebody says, you know, what are your, what's your opinion on this cleanse? I'll, I'll literally say, you know, it's tough to be able to do for a couple of days, but it might be enough of a jump start for you to feel like you're actually finding success later when the cleanse is over and you're getting back into a different type of eating. But the key with any of those cleanses is that they're going to make you poop a lot. So you better hope that you're finding a toilet nearby. And after that, then you have to get into a habit of eating well. So if it's a three-day cleanse or a seven-day cleanse where it really pushes their limits and really makes them work hard, but then they back off and they start having food that's like good quality fruits, vegetables, lean proteins, carbs when they need it, that kind of stuff, as long as they're able to do it, that's fine. If it works, it works. I'm not going to argue too much with it. Is the success rate that high with it? Probably not. But I mean, if you go on a three-day or five-day cleanse and you drop five or ten pounds, that looks really good in that client's eyes, and that's going to be giving them a lot of optimism going forward. They'll start saying, oh, I had success. I can do this now. I can actually push it. So cool. If it's a spark that jumpstarts that person into something bigger and helps them to stick with it, then the spark is all you need. I mean, it might not be the jerry can of gas on the fire, but that's all you need is that one little spark to make something happen. If that works for that person, then it works for that person. Yeah, it's uh, interesting because like over the years – maybe like four years ago, if a client told me they're going to do a cleanse, I would try to educate them on like what's going to happen to your body. And most likely you might gain some weight back when you go back to normal eating. But like now it's like, okay, you want to try it. You might as well try it because you already decided like whatever I say is not going to change your mind now. And who knows it actually might work. You'll get super motivated that you're seeing your weight fall off. And then you're like, okay, now I'm going to do this clean eating thing to maintain my momentum. Yeah. And at that point, they're interested in making change. So the worst thing you could do is say to somebody who's interested in making change, no, don't do that because it's stupid. Because now they're not interested in making change whatsoever. So they're exactly where they were before. So if you're able to have a client come in and say, I want to do this cleanse, what do you think? And you say, you know what, give it a shot, see if it works. You're encouraging them to actually create that change. And if they create enough of a change and say, this is working, this is feeling good, I want to keep making this change in the right direction. Again, it's just that spark. It's all it takes is sometimes just that little thought process or that little change in their ability to say, I can do this and I've found success, and they're off to the races with it. 
And then after they're done that cleanse, if you're able to provide some advice to say, okay, now that you're done the cleanse, try doing this, 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 and this to be able to continue to see some of the weight loss that you're working on or to be able to see the benefit of what the cleanse was trying to promote to you, then you're able to influence what their decision-making is going forward. But it wouldn't have happened if they hadn't been open to making that change in the first place. Oh, definitely. Like the only diet that I've seen that just just did not work for clients, I've had a handful do them, is that Bernstein diet. Have you ever heard of that before? Yeah, I've had a couple of clients that went on that and we tracked their body composition and showed that they actually lost lean body mass rather than body fat. So that wasn't really all that enthusiastic for them. Yeah, like when I, I think the first client who's ever done it, I'm like, okay, you're decided, I get it will modify your workout and I just like told her I'm like you're most likely not going to have the same energy like you did before in your workout so we're gonna have to modify and she's like yeah I totally get it and then Mm -hmm. I think after her warm-up that's when she actually passed out on me and I'm like come on (laughs) yeah yeah when you have no carbs and your body's pretty much ketogenic and you're not used to that it's going to be pretty difficult for you to actually get any kind of energy especially when your body has zero idea of what to do in that state Actually, the other one, um, I never trained this woman. It was a client, and it was his uh, wife. And I've never heard this before, but it's I can't remember the diet's name. But you one, you're on only 500 calories per day, and I was like, awesome. <laughs> and mm-hmm. the second thing was you're supposed to take these supplements because it's just for women only, where oh, yeah. it almost imitates that you're like right about when you're about to get pregnant, so your hormones are doing whatever they're doing. And that's how it's supposed to like lose weight. And I was like, oh, so does she have to like go see a doctor and get these things prescribed? And he's like, oh, no, you can just go to Reflex and you can buy them. I'm like, awesome. <laughs> so essentially they're on like a mega dose of a birth control medication that's not medically supervised while taking in fewer calories than would be needed to support life in order to trick the body into thinking that it's pregnant while not being able to support second generation of life. That's fantastic. Science, right? <laughs> Word. <laughs> Man. Like and like this was like the fifth time that she did it too and I was like that's uh, how long has she been trying to lose that last 10 pounds is obviously hey. not working. <laughs> hey, fifth times the charm, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah. Um where was I going to go with this? Um let's talk about go back to injuries cuz with the general population, what's kind of like the most common like theme that you see with like dysfunctions and injuries and things like that? Well, the two major areas that you tend to see a lot, especially with the general population are just sore lower backs and sore shoulders. And you figure how much time people spend sitting in a rounded forward posture. Maybe they're in an office or in a car or something like that. Those areas just get a little bit stiff and cranky and beat up. So over time, those are the areas that seem to get the most, I guess you could say worn down from sitting or sitting hunched over a computer or keyboard or something like that. So getting people to just get more mobile through there, getting stronger, uh, getting better conditioning is usually an easy way that you can help remove a lot of people's aches and pains and conditioning doesn't just mean oh well let's do cardio it's okay well can you make a muscle contract produce force produce it over an extended period of time consistently hit and uh, control a position that you want to get that joint into and be able to produce that force in that position so conditioning comes up everything seems to get better so would you like suggest for someone just starting out that's like a desk jockey just to like maybe start foam rolling and just stretching or adding that more into their programs like how would you kind of program more mobility work into someone's uh, workout 
Well, a big element of mobility work is uh, do they need it and can they control it? So if somebody doesn't have a specific amount of mobility in a joint, let's say they're 60 or 70 years old and they've got disc degeneration, they've got osteoarthritis, and literally the joints do not move through a range of motion anymore. So instead of having maybe like 14 degrees of flexion and extension in their spinal vertebrae, they only have about 7 degrees. You can't really push that range of motion any further if they don't have the ability to use it. Whereas conversely, let's say you have a young 20-year-old female who's a former gymnast or dancer, hypermobile is all get out, but she can't squat or bend down to touch her toes because she's got guarding tension and she just doesn't have the ability to use the range of motion that she has. So in either of those situations, mobility is completely different. So one is the person just doesn't have the range of motion in the case of that 70-year-old degenerated client, and the other is they have it, but they just can't control it or use it. So the mobility that you would program for those two individuals are going to be completely different just due to the fact that there's different reasons why they don't have that mobility to use. So for somebody like the dancer who's hypermobile but can't access it, you'd have to get them into altered positions to be able to use that range of motion, use that positioning, develop some tension in it, develop some motor control in it, and then be able to get them to progress through that. For the guy who's... 70 years old and degenerated, then we have to get them close to those end ranges and be able to slowly apply force to try to get them to get a little bit more. So it might only move like a quarter of a degree, but just getting them into that position where they use as much as they have and then slowly push to the ends to be able to see if they can get just a smaller amount more. So in each of those cases, they're going to be completely different types of mobility, but it's just a matter of what does that person need. Simply grabbing on them and saying, oh, well, let's just stretch your hamstrings. That only really works for the people who have short hamstrings. But it doesn't work for the people who have short hamstrings because of an underlying condition. So understanding why mobility has to be tailored becomes more important than actually giving a mobility exercise. Have you uh, worked with like that age range of like 65 to 75? Absolutely. One of my clients is 75 and he just deadlifted 335 on his birthday. <laughs> That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like um, I have one guy I train and he's 74 and he's always like complaining that he's not getting stronger. And I'm like, well, you are 74. Like there is a limit. But I'm wondering with your experience, like have you like obviously with that one client deadlifting that much, like was he like pain free that entire time building up to it? Like how long have you been working with them? And have you seen other older generations improve their strength? Absolutely. That one example, he's somebody I've worked with for the last 10 years, and that was a PR lift for him. So 335 for three reps is the most he's ever lifted at 74 years old. So for that, I mean, I would say that strength should be something that can be developed through the lifespan. It's a matter of what's the risk to the reward. So if you have somebody who has a history of uh, osteoarthritis or inflammatory issues or degenerative conditions or um, maybe they're riding bone on bone on their hips or their spine, probably isn't worth it to push heavy weights with that individual due to the fact it's just going to cause more problems than it's really worth. I mean, if you get an Instagram video of a guy pulling a deadlift, but then he can't walk for the next two months due to the fact that his hips are so flared up, that's not a risk that's really worth it for that person. But that doesn't mean that you can't generate strength in other ways or other patterns or anything else. I mean, you can teach anybody how to breathe and brace, but the whole reason that somebody's coming to the gym is to get stronger. So you should be able to see lifelong changes in strength. Some points, yeah, you're going to see things like sarcopenia where the, the muscle literally wastes away and you don't have the strength anymore. Testosterone decreases over a lifespan, so you don't have the ability to remodel tissues as easily. Dehydration, degenerative changes, all that stuff adds up as you get older. 
and it makes it a lot harder to be able to gain strength. But that doesn't mean that strength gain should be completely innocuous or not possible for somebody who's in a 60- and 70-year-old age group. I was just asking because, like, I was just trying to, like, make myself feel better. I'm like, I hope I'm doing a good job. But then when I look at other things, because, like, right now he's pretty injured only because of him falling. So, like, one example was, um, I think, maybe six months ago this happened. Like, he was... He turned his alarm on for his house and he was walking out to his car, but then his whole alarm went off. So he like turned really quick and then on the driveway, it was pretty icy. So he slipped and fell right into his hip, but yeah. he didn't break anything and he just got back up. And I told him like, you know, if you weren't working out, I'm pretty sure you would have broken something on that fall. Yeah. Yeah. And then like two months after that, he fell on his shoulder and then he fell on his shoulder again last month. And I'm like, this is probably why you're not getting stronger is because we can't really do anything unless you're like pain free essentially because everything hurts whatever like whatever exercise I give you you're telling me it hurts. So it's kind yeah. of hard to kind of motivate someone like that that's already aging and has all these injuries and you're just like come on like you can do it. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, part of that might be coming down to finding the stuff that he can do well and succeed with. So, I mean, he keeps falling on his shoulders. Can he do things like rows or can he do leg work or can he do things like a timed hold or anything like that where you can show that he's seeing progress? Um, like rows, he can do fine. And he said that's his favorite one. And I'm like, well, that's the only thing that we can do right now. But cool. like the other thing is like he I've referred him to like physios and things like that. And, and he went like two times and he's like, that stuff doesn't work. Yeah, fair. Okay. Well, he had an experience and he's able to say something about it. Cool. He's able to do rows. He loves it and he's seeing progress with that. I'm guessing you can keep riding that train. But what about doing things like balance training or maybe some different core training or something where you can see progress? I mean, get the guy doing some high volume stuff and pack some meat on his bones and then do before and after pictures. There's always ways that you can see progress with people. I mean, some people can't quite see the forest for the trees. And like you said, like, he fell a bunch of times and didn't break anything. That's a massive, massive benefit. I mean, considering that if he hadn't been working out, if he would have broke his hip, the five-year mortality rate on a broken hip is insanely high. So if he was able to fall, not break his hip, get right back up and keep walking around, he's great because now he doesn't have to worry about living in a home or having somebody wipe his butt for him just due to the fact that he's able to control himself on that now. Oh, definitely. It's like the Amazon guy at your house. <laughs> yeah, I think somebody just rang the door and the dogs are going crazy, but Lindsay's handling all that. She's got it under control. That's awesome. Yeah. But yeah, like uh, I was going to mention like his second fall for his shoulder. Like I'm surprised he's not in the hospital. Like he said he was going into his attic, uh, attic and then um, as he got into it, he like sat onto like – it's hard to explain without showing you. Um, so, like, you're going straight up into an attic, and you're, like, kind of sit into that little crawl space. Yeah. And he actually fell through the roof down to the floor onto his shoulder. Oh, man. And, like, nothing broke. And I'm like, seriously, you're, like, made out of stone. <laughs> yeah. And like, like, you can't kill that guy. Yeah, no. And, like, it just, he just says, it's just really sore all the time. And I'm like... Yeah, you fell, yeah. like, <laughs> pretty far, so it's going to hurt. You fell through a ceiling, dude. That's, like, <laughs> yeah. movie-level stuntman stuff. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Oh, man. Um, I'm going to go to a Twitter question because it was um, rehab-focused. I'm going to pull it up. Um, sure. Email. Hopefully I said his name right. Um, does he have any uh, secret tricks up his sleeve uh, he uses when his back starts to flare up? 
Um, the biggest things that I'll do is uh, a braced dead bug or a front plank, or I'll just get up and go for a long walk because that seems to be the only things that work well for me. And if it's really flared up, I try not to do anything that pisses it off further. Like if I, the worst for me is if I sit on a long plane ride, if I go to teach a workshop somewhere and it's like three or five hours, I get onto the plane, it vibrates and makes everything stiff and tight. Those seats are never comfortable to begin with. So after I get out and I walk around for a bit and go to the hotel room, just doing something active, whether it's a little bit of stretching, whether it's going down to the gym and riding a bike. Uh, hopefully the gym has a bike, but if it doesn't, oh well. But uh, doing some stretching, doing some core activation, pretty much anything I can find a way to get it working. That's usually the best thing. Yeah, like I think a lot of people, especially in like general population, they always complain that their lower back hurts. And like for me, like the first thing I tell them is like, why don't you just need to move? Because if you're sitting at your desk for like 10 to 12 hours, no wonder yeah. your back is hurting. Yeah. And like a lot of stuff I like to do is just like, yeah, simple core progressions like the bird dog or dead bug. And then let's like roll out your hip flexors. And then I'm like, OK, well, how do you feel now? They're like, ah, actually pretty better. Like, like I'm like, that's pretty good. Then, <laughs> Like it's just the stuff you just need to do every single day. Yeah. And people get into the idea of, oh, that's going to be boring. Well, I never hear anyone complain about how exciting brushing their teeth are. I mean, you do the exact same thing every day. Everyone has a routine of showering. Everyone has a routine of brushing your teeth. It shouldn't necessarily be different. If you have a routine of exercise, it's like, okay, get in there and do something. Think about what you're doing. Get the job done. Move on. I mean, if a dead bug helps you feel a thousand times better, who cares if it's boring? Just do it and feel better. So now what do you like to do with a client if they say had like a bulging disc or a herniated disc on like L5, L4, like that kind of area? Um, part of it comes down to what can they do and what can't they do. So typically what I found is L5, S1, uh, L4, or 5 those kind of areas are usually more flexion-based pains or flexion-based problems. So the person over-flexes the area and has some issue with that, or they over-rotate the area, especially L5, S1. Both of them come down to not having necessarily the core control that they need to be able to move in a way that... Uh, means that their hips are doing the work versus their spine. So they kind of over-dominate the spine versus getting the hips to actually do something. So if I can teach the person how to at least brace their abs, get them to breathe while they're bracing, and then get them to move their hips, that usually clears up a whole bunch of stuff. And if that means doing things like a hip hinge, a deadlift, dead bug, bird dog, front plank, side plank, inverted upside down plank, whatever works for the person, you know. But at the end of the day, it's just, okay, well, let's get through to not move through the segments that you move a lot from that does cause some sort of a pain trigger and get you to move from your hips versus moving from your spine. You can do that. It winds up catching a whole bunch of things. I find a, like a common theme with people with like herniated discs where when they go see a physio and the physio emails me back on what I need to work on, it's almost like those all those people are living in such like high tension, like they're constantly bracing their core so hard that they almost can't move. And all they need to do is kind of like learn to relax and contract. And I find that's yeah. almost like almost so difficult to teach that to a client. And you're like, all right, think of like a jellyfish. It contracts and it's loose. It contracts and is loose. And they're like, I don't know how to do that. Yeah. I mean, if you've ever had pain like that before, you know that it almost gives you like PTSD and you don't ever want to go back to a situation where it's 
set up to actually create that same type of pain. So people will guard with tension and not want to let go because they just don't want to go back to that same state. Even if they're not currently having any kind of pain, it's, okay, I don't want to go back, so I'm just going to stay tight and resist against it. So having people overcome that fear, even if there's no physiological reason for it or mechanical or structural reason, that fear is going to hold them back more than anything else. It doesn't mean to go into it like completely reckless and say, oh, well, you know, just move your spine anyway, knowing that there are probably some ways that person is going to be very hesitant to, and that could actually cause some tissue damage that might make them hurt more in the end. It's a matter of saying, okay, well, go easy with it, but don't be afraid of the pain. If you get into a situation that pushes it a little bit, maybe you just need to back out of it and do something different. But at the end of the day, it's making sure that they're psychologically in a good mind frame to move and do stuff, but also giving them the tools they need to be able to avoid stuff that might trigger them even further. And like I had one client where I believe he was L5, L4, and he was just in constant pain, like all the time to the point where he was getting like the shooting nerve pain down his left leg. And he ended up getting surgery and what he explained to me, what they did is they went in there and just shaved off the bulging discs so it didn't hit the nerves. Yep. And then when he finally came back to the gym, like the first thing I noticed, he looked like he grew three inches taller because he wasn't hunched over anymore, like just bracing for that pain. And yep. I was like, man, did you like grow after the surgery? Like, And he, and he said it was unbelievable because after he said he was pain free, like his back just did not hurt anymore. And I'm like, that's pretty freaking cool. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, there are some situations where that's fantastic and it happens, but there's also some situations where surgery does nothing. So it's a matter of, okay, well, is it the right treatment for the right person? And does it actually mean that the disc is causing pain in the first place? So you could have somebody who has a complete train wreck of an MRI in terms of disc bulges and pressing on nerves and stuff like that. And they're asymptomatic. They just walk into the gym saying, hey, I want to sign up for a gym membership today. What are you going to have me do? Deadlifts? Cool. Let's go. Or you could have somebody who has no disc bulges but still has crippling back pain. So the structure itself doesn't necessitate having pain or problems. It just means the person has a disc bulge. If they had surgery and it makes it better, cool. That's fantastic. But it doesn't necessarily mean that that is going to be the case for everybody. So you would say like surgery is not always the answer. Like, do you think with the proper like rehab program, people can go pain free if they had any kind of low back issues? I mean, it's going to be case by case dependent, but in many situations, the surgery may or may not relieve pain, but it might make the structure into a better scenario where they might not have the structure pressing on the nerve, which could allow them to do things differently. But at the end of the day, that's a decision that they have to make with their uh, surgeon or with their physiotherapist as far as whether that's something to do. It's not something I really want to do, just a blanket coverage on and say, oh, yeah, do this, and that's all you need to do. If you say, oh, well, now you just have to have surgery on discs all the time, that's kind of reckless and not something that's necessary, but it might also not be that accurate. Yeah, because I have one client that was kind of debating whether or not to get um, back surgery, and she tried, um, what's it called, decompression therapy, and she mm -hmm. said it did help, but she's still like, it's still kind of lingering in there. And I think she's done that for like six months, and she's like, I just had enough. I need to get back into the gym and just move. So we got her like on a very like mediocre, like intensity program with just mobility stuff and seeing what triggers anything and what doesn't, and then keeping like those certain exercises in. But uh, when she went to the surgeon, they suggested two different things. Like 
one, they wanted to fuse her, I can't remember which, it might have been L5, L4, L3 or something like that together. And they called it like the clamp or something where they put in like two pins and then over time it just slowly comes down and fuses all of the vertebrae together. Have you ever trained anyone with like fusion um, surgeries? Yeah, and none of them go well. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and when you look at a lot of the long-term outcomes on fusion surgeries, none of them are very good. And when it comes to things like pain reduction, mobility restoration, they're not really that great. They do seem to be beneficial for cervical fusions, but lumbar fusions, they don't really seem to produce that much of a benefit. Um, I would say that in, in the situations like that, it would be best to maybe get a second opinion and see what a different surgeon would say. I'm not saying that the surgeon's wrong by any means because that's what they know and they know that inside and out. But I would say if there is a different approach available, it might be worth looking into it. And if you have multiple surgeons saying here is the only thing that's going to work for you, that adds some value too, because it says that, okay, well, multiple professionals agree after looking at the same patient, then there probably is something to that. But from my experience, I'll be able to say that uh, fusion surgeries don't seem to have that great of a long-term outcome. Like, what kind of quality of life do people usually have after a fusion surgery in the lumbar spine? Well, I mean, it depends on the individual, but in yeah. terms of pain reduction, it doesn't seem to be like switching a, a light on or off or anything like that. It's not like the person was in a 10 pain before and a zero pain after. It's more like if they were in a 10 pain before, they're now in like a seven or six pain. So it does help in some situations, but then there's other situations where it's like they were in a four pain, but now they're up to a seven pain because now they've got this fusion surgery that just irritated the heck out of everything around it. And now they're kind of flared up with it. And then from there, the spine is meant to move and rotate when you do things like walk or when you sit and stand. And if it can't do that, something else has to pick up the slack. So if you fuse something like L3, 4, L4, 5, and those vertebrae are supposed to actually do some rotating, but now they don't, L5, S1 has to rotate. And rotation is one of the number one ways of having a herniation in that zone. So now you're robbing from Peter to pay Paul. And it's a matter of, okay, how long can we have this go before something happens in one of the other areas that now we've stolen mobility from these zones and we've asked these other zones to pick up more. So now we have L5, S1 issues, uh, SI joint issues, maybe some TL junction issues. But you know, if you take a normally mobile segment and you make it immobile, the other segments have to become mobile if the person wants to walk. And that usually leads to bad things down their line. Man, you should talk to my client. You're so smart on this stuff. That's awesome. Yeah, well, I mean, you do it long enough, you learn the stuff that works and the stuff that doesn't. I mean, in theory, this, the fusion surgery does make sense. It means that that vertebrae segment doesn't move anymore, which is good because if that segment was unstable, fantastic. Now it's as stable as it'll ever be. The downside is that it was supposed to move a little, little bit in the first place, but now it can't. So what do you do about that? Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. Like I, I can tell that she already kind of made up her mind that she doesn't want to go down the surgery route unless it's like dire need like that's the only thing that's gonna work but she's yeah. one of those people like i think over the years it's always like she always wants to get to this like level of exercise where you know every day is like balls to the wall like i'm gonna like just sweat my ass off and work and just lift as heavy shit as i can and then you get yeah. injured <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, it might be about tempering expectations and saying, do you want to just do the workout or do you want to get the benefit of the workout? Like if you want to get the benefit of the workout, you don't necessarily have to go balls to the wall every day. You might have to do that once or twice with some really concentrated efforts. But if you want to look good for Instagram, yeah, you can do a balls to the wall workout. But then if you can't walk for four days, well, what was the point of that? 
Okay. But let's say you want to get stronger and better and move better the day after. Sometimes you can approach that with very little or moderate effort and be able to actually leave the gym feeling better and moving better and doing better than when you came in in the first place. So part of that comes down to tempering expectations. Do you want to just look really good while you do a workout or do you want to feel really good after the workout is over? And I've also had another client with like almost like a similar back issue, but she did not go down the route of my client that actually did the decompression because she's one of those people, same way, but she felt like she always has to compete because she played like rec soccer. And I guess yep. she felt like she needed to be like, you know, the captain of the team and I'm going to win, you know, some tournament. And if I don't play, then my whole team's going to lose. But then after a game of playing soccer with a bad back, she can't walk for three days and she'll go to work and like slowly reach down to her chair to sit down and like take deep breaths just to brace that movement. And I'm like, this is not a good quality of life. Like you need to do your rehab. Yeah. And I mean, some people, they get in that vicious cycle of, okay, I feel good. I'm going to go play until I don't feel good, knowing that it's too late at that point. So having a, a game plan set out, if she's hyper competitive, maybe use that against her. Say, okay, here's the goal. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to play for 30 minutes and then be strong enough to be able to say, I'm going to stop at that point. And then I want you to do that again tomorrow. Because if you play for 60 minutes today, you probably won't be able to play tomorrow. I wish it was that simple. I've I've done that before too, but then oh, like yeah. yeah, and I think a lot of it comes to finding success with what that client's willing to do or how they view that competition. So okay, do you want to just go out there and play hard, or do you want to play smart? Do you want to go out there and run the fastest on the field, or do you want to score three goals? We got to change how you play so that you can keep playing the game, and that might mean saying okay, well we got to adjust that. Have you not run as much? But look at the play a little bit differently and be able to see if you can get one or two plays ahead of where the ball is right now. So that way you don't have to bust your butt and get in there. I mean, look at someone like Yarmer Jagger. The dude's closing in on 50, still playing in the NHL. And the fact that he's able to do that, when he was in his 20s and 30s, if you watched him play, he never worked that hard. Like he would always look at the puck and he'd kind of just kind of skate around and he would be where the puck was going to be in two or three plays. He just knew where the puck was going to be, and that allowed him to have a longevity in his career that's unmatched. So you look at the guys that just bust their butt and work hard and take all the hits, they're out of the league before they're 30. He's in there and still three or four generations in of a lot of those players. He was playing before many of the players now were born. So that tells you that he obviously knew what he was doing ahead at a time to be able to save himself and have a long career. So now you got to start teaching those clients that, okay, that's great that you want to work hard while you're out there, but what's the point of the game? You want to win, right? You want to score the goal. Let's see if we can figure out ways to make it smarter so that you don't have to work as hard and you can actually get up and move around tomorrow. Now, if you had to like suggest like kind of like self rehab therapies, like would you like suggest a client to go see a massage or get like dry needling done or like go for a float or anything like that? What would you suggest? All of them. All I mean, the only way you're going to know if something works for somebody is to try it. So we've got a massage therapist in our club and I'll say to people, yeah, go for a massage. See what you think. If it works for you and you feel better with it, fantastic. If it doesn't work for you, well, it's probably covered under your healthcare plan, so you're not out anything. But at least you know and you can actually see what it feels like. If it's a great experience for you, you'll never know it by not doing it. 
I do a lot of work with physical therapists and chiropractors. And if somebody says, I'm interested in going to a chiro, I have a list of different chiros that I can refer them to. And I know the ones that work really well with some conditions and really well with other conditions. So I can say, here, go to this guy. He's awesome with stuff with necks and shoulders. He's not going to crack your neck because I know you said that you were against that. He's got other techniques and tools. You want to have your neck crack? Go for it. He's got this going on. But everyone's going to be a little bit different as far as what they want to have happen. And if you match them up with a practitioner who can do really good work, everything's happy. Now, if you had to compare like a chiro and physio and choose one, because like the physio I go to, he does know some like manipulations and things that a chiro can do. Mm-hmm. But then on the other side, like a chiro can't do dry needling. So which one would you like suggest? Like which, what are like the pros or cons? Cause I always kind of go back and forth on this one. The biggest thing I would say is who's best at what they do and what does that person need? And if they need to get mobile in a certain area, I'd say, you know, go try a Cairo who can do a manipulation on you. If it works really well, cool. If it doesn't work really well, I got a physio as a backup. Or if they're really against chiropractic, then have a physio that you can send them to. Or maybe it's something where they've just got chronic tension in joints and muscles and they need to have like some electric stem or dry needling or something like that, send them to the physio. It's not necessarily a matter of one over the other or one is being better or worse or anything like that. It's like you said, they have different skill sets and they have different aptitudes. I'm going to send them where the person is the best at the aptitude that they have. I only ask because like I've had some clients go to a Cairo and they're like, yeah, I felt good after, but then the next day I felt the same. And then every week I was just going in and getting cracked and snapped and 20 minutes later, see you later and I'll see you next week type of deal. And I don't know, ever since then I was kind of like put off on Cairo's and kind of just stuck to physios. I just wanted like more insight. Yeah. And I mean, there are some where that is their business model and that's all they do, but there's others who don't. And I mean, in Vancouver, I'm pretty sure I could find 20 or 30 chiros who are fantastic at what they do, teach more of the mobility end of things and get the person off the table to do stuff to reprogram. But at the end of the day, I mean, there's good chiros, there's not so good chiros, there's good physios, there's not so good physios, there's good trainers, there's not so good trainers. So we can't necessarily judge the profession based on one or two experiences that may not have been satisfactory. If you have a a professional that you work with who you're like, this person does awesome work, then they're the exception that you should be sending people to. But you don't know who those people are until you've at least tried a few individuals to be able to say, okay, this person does good work. This person, I'm not sold on them yet. This person, I'm never sending somebody to. Like I've had a a number of practitioners who it's like, you know what, I'm just not going to send people to you because I don't like the work that you do or your business model. Or like I've had some people where they tried to upsell clients into massive packages where all they needed was maybe like one or two manipulations and that's it. So I was like, you know what? No, your business model doesn't match up with what I'm trying to get these people at the end of the day. And at the end of the day, I want to make sure that they get the best bang for their buck one way or another. It's not necessarily a business thing. It's more of looking out for that client's best interest. And if that means that they only need a massage because I can't do it in the gym or say they need to go on a very specific rehab protocol that the physio sets up that I can't offer, I'm fine with that. So whatever's working best for that person. I don't care if I lose a couple of sessions because it's not in that patient's or that client's best interest. I'm happy to lose the session if it means that they're looked after really well. If it means they come back and they can continue training with me and get stronger, then But if I'm trying to work with somebody who, as a professional, isn't lining up with what should be given to that client, then I'm going to just say, you know, I'm going to find somebody who's able to do a little bit of a different job for it. 
So you might have to send your clients to one or two or three or four different providers to be able to say, okay, well, I found a couple that work really well. Now, one way that you can moderate that is go to them yourself. I'm sure that you can probably use a tune-up once in a while. That way you can get first-hand knowledge to be able to say, okay, this is how this person operates. I know what they're doing and I trust what they're doing, so let's get send people to them. Yeah, definitely. I, got, I think I'm only sour about Kairos because I had one client where she was a marathon runner, but she was probably 40 pounds overweight, but she just enjoyed running. And she had mm-hmm. all this like hip pain and issues. And I'm like, you know, you could probably go see a Cairo or a physio and they can help you out and figure out what's going on. So she decided to go see a Cairo. And then she came back to me saying that, um, oh, I saw the Cairo. It was all good. Uh, what he suggested is that I stop seeing you twice a week, see him twice a week, and I can still train for my full marathon. And I'm like, all right, great. <laughs> yeah. At that point, you might have to reach out to that Cairo and say, okay, why did you recommend that? Like, what was the reasoning behind it? What am I doing that you don't want to see happen? Or what should I do to make it something that you want to see happen? Or what are you doing that I'm not doing that is going to benefit that person more than strength? So not necessarily in like a confrontational mode, just be like, okay, well, I want to be on the same page as you in terms of what we're doing here. What are you seeing that I'm not seeing? And it might just be that they say, oh, I don't want them to do any of this exercise or that exercise. Okay, cool. I can stop doing those exercises, but that just means that they still can come into the gym and do stuff. We'll just miss those exercises. So sometimes it just comes down to communicating and making sure you're all on the same page. Yeah, I think I was talking about this with um, Josh Henkin, I think. And like our industry is pretty young still. So sometimes when, you know, a client goes to a physio Cairo and they're kind of old school and they're like, Oh, you're seeing a trainer. You must be just doing burpees and crunches for a full hour. So you probably should stop seeing them. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, understanding who you are is going to be a big thing. Like if I had somebody who had like spinal stenosis and disc issues in my back and they said, yeah, I want to go try a local CrossFit gym. I'd say, I want to know who that coach is so that I know that they're not giving you something that's just burpees and thrusters for an hour, because that's going to cause a lot of problems for you. But if that's somebody who does initial intake assessments, scales the workout up and down, actually knows what they're talking about. Fantastic. I'll send that person to you. No problem. Especially if that's what you want to do and they're willing to take care of you. But not enough physical therapists or chiropractors know good trainers out there to work with. So if you reach out to them and say, hey, here's who I am. Here's what I can do. Here's what I want to do with this client. What do you think? Now they, you've earned their trust now. Now you can actually say this person knows what they're doing. Now, in your opinion, if like someone went into a physio with whatever injury, like it can be anything, how long should a physio spend with someone before they can you know, be sent off and you don't have to see me anymore because i think it might have been charlie weingroff or someone like that who said one time that you know if your physio or cairo takes more than i think it was like six or eight sessions with them and they're still seeing you then you're probably not doing a great job on their rehab yeah and i mean that's going to be very dependent on who that person is and what situation they're in there for and also is that physio going to actually give you some recommendations on what you should do or shouldn't do i I do agree that there should be a situation where the physio and trainer are working together to try to help that person out as much as possible if the physio is doing the hands-on manual work or passive modality treatment or whatever needs to happen there 
fantastic because that's all stuff that trainers can't do. But if they need to have a stronger core or activate their glutes more or get more ankle dorsiflexion or do general conditioning, which they probably do, that would be an idea that the trainer should be involved in that process. So if they are taking an extended period of time, the longest I've had a tra- uh, physio say to not have a client train was one month. And that was something where it's like, okay, well, they were given specific homework and stuff to do in the meantime. But most of the time when I'm working with somebody and they're in a physio, I'm in the process to be able to say, you know, here's what I want to do with this person. Here's what I see happening. What do you want to have them do or not do? What should we focus on for the next little while while you're in here? What should we avoid? And just making sure we're all on the same page. That communication element, you can't escape. You have to have that communication there to be able to get the right benefit for that person. Oh, definitely. Like the physios I work with, uh, it's great because I've actually trained all of them, well, majority of all of them. So they actually know how I train. So anytime they get a client from us or another person that's a walk-in, they'll suggest like part of the rehab that you should go see me and train because it's going to be part of your rehab. And again, they'll like communicate through email. Like these are the six exercises that I want them to do every time they see you. And it's really easy just to plug into their program and off the go. Yeah, exactly. Like you got to be able to know who you're working with. And if you're expecting the physio to know who you are and what you do without actually putting yourself in front of them, you're going to be out to lunch. You need to have something work. Oh, definitely. Um, so last question, cause we're getting close to an hour and somehow this always goes so fast and I don't even know where the time goes, but, um, where can people find you online? What are your next projects coming up and any kind of speaking engagements coming up? Well, funny you should mention that because I'm apparently doing one in uh, Vancouver and in uh, April with Tony Gentlecore, and I don't know who organized that for me. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's somebody with the name Raphael, but uh, you know that's happening. So that's actually on our web my website, uh, Complete Shoulder and Hip Blueprints. But you can find that through uh, DeanSomerset.com, uh, Facebook, Twitter, the Instagram, all that kind of fun stuff. I'm on there. Perfect. So I just want to thank you for all your time and all this great knowledge you shared with us. Not a problem, man. Glad to be here. All right. So that's going to wrap up episode 30, which is amazing that I've already done 30 interviews. So that's 30 weeks of constant content of information for nutrition, training, and everything you can think of that's related to health. So I want to bring it out to you guys. If there's anything that you want to learn or know from all my guests, feel free to email me, you know, contact me through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It's really easy to find me with a long, complicated last name. So search me up, Rafael Matuszewski, and let's connect. Let's get some questions going and also check out the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash cut the shit get fit and we'll uh, see you guys next week